Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast listeners, we got a great show for you today. Our guest is professor of economics and public policy at the University of Oxford Blavatnik School of Government and a professional fellow at St. Anthony's College. He was also director of the Research Development Department of the World Bank. Throughout his career, he authored a bunch of publications and books, including the bestsellers The Bottom Billion and The Future of Capitalism. And also, I think he's our first guest that's received a knighthood. In today's episode, we're talking economics and capitalism. We kick things off by covering some instances of the derailment of capitalism. We go all the way back to the mid-1800s to Bradford, England's industrial rise, the ensuing health crisis, and how capitalism responded. We walk forward to talk about the divide between metropolis and provincial cities and the new class divide. We discuss psychological and economic issues facing what our guest refers to as left-behind countries. We then shift to a thoughtful discussion of prescriptions of these problems and the factors need to work in harmony to create common purpose. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Sir Paul Collier. Professor Paul Collier, welcome to the show. Thanks, Meb, for inviting me. Thanks for the opportunity of talking. We got a lot of exciting stuff to talk about today. I figured we'd start with your most recent book, The Future of Capitalism, which none other than Bill Gates said was one of his favorite reads of the summer last year. As we talk about capitalism, which seems to be in the news a lot lately, particularly here in the US and the elections and everything else going on, it seems sort of undeniable that if you look back in history, that capitalism has been a great force for good, whether you measure it by people's lifespans getting longer, GDP, prosperity, whatever it may be. But more recently, you've written a lot about that it seems to have gone off the rails a bit. Love to hear you talk about background of capitalism, the evolution, and why this may be a good time for a rethink. Yeah, sure. I mean, as you say, I mean, capitalism, we've had civilization around the world of various forms for 10,000 years. And only in the last 200 have we hit on a system which can actually lift mass living standards. And then it really only happened once. The first factory on earth was about 10 miles from where I was born in the north of England. And it spread from there. Other places imitated it, got the hang of it. 
And so it's been a very rare event, and it's been brilliant for most of that time. What capitalism offers is a combination of competition and collaboration, which enables ordinary workers to work at scale, uh, to, to specialize so they can learn by doing, firms to have long-term relationships with finance so that they can finance investment, and they compete with each other and innovate. So it's a marvelous package, but it doesn't work on autopilot. Sometimes it comes off the rails. In the last 200 years, I'd count three big derailments, and we're living in one right now. So it's a wonderful system, but about 40 years ago, we got into an intellectual fallacy that it worked on autopilot, that markets just functioned without any public policy, that in effect, we didn't need government. And that was a terrible, terrible mistake. So if you like, I'd go through the first of the derailments because the present one I'm going to talk about in depth. The second one, the Great Depression, everybody knows about in some way, shape or form. But that first derailment, people don't know about. So let me start off on that. So because capitalism started 10 miles from where I was born, the north of England, the first derailment happened all around where I was born. I'm going to take you to the, the first half of the 19th century. We're going to go to the most booming city in the whole of Europe. So Europe's equivalent is Chicago. It's where my grandfather moved from a an impoverished German village to this city, it's called Bradford. We're gonna go homing in on Bradford in the 1840s and actually 1849, because people were pouring into Bradford. It was very productive. People were much more productive working in factories and all the factories were clustered together. So in terms of productivity, it was a miracle. But in 1849, cholera broke out in Bradford. And in fact, life expectancy in Bradford and other northern cities fell. So the average person who was born in those cities was dead by 19. So life expectancy collapsed to just 19 years. It was a crisis of public health. Why? Because there was no public policy to provide clean water, sewage, separate sewage from the water, build decent housing. So that was the crisis. But it created a response from capitalism itself. So we're going to go, we stay with Bradford and we go to Mester Big. And Mester Big was the biggest mill owner in Bradford. It was called Titus Salt. Not only was the biggest mill owner, but he was the, the local mayor and he was the city's one member of parliament. So he really was Mester Big in every sense. And there he was, 1849, mayor, member of parliament, major employer. And it seems to have seared his soul because he realized he was responsible. His, his own workers were dying, his citizens were dying. And it may well have been the equivalent to what Bill Gates experienced with his, his letter from his cancer-stricken mother, which turned Bill Gates into this amazing philanthropist. And so Titus Salt did the same. He sort of pioneered big business philanthropy. He was a very rich man. He gave his entire fortune away. Partly he recognized obligations to his workforce. And so he built 
But it was the first industrial purpose-built town on Earth. He was died of salt, it's called Salt Air. It's now a World Heritage Center because it was first. And then he devoted the rest of his fortune to the people of the city, cleaning it up, parks and so on. And people responded. His workforce was loyal. The citizens celebrated him. And when he died, he had the biggest funeral Bradford's ever seen. There's a statue in the middle of the city, and he's still fondly remembered. So that was Bradford. We just had to go a few miles from Bradford to Rochdale. Same time, 1840s, same crisis. People are dying. People have nowhere to live. People are poor. Sometimes people lose a job or something. So in this case, what happened was families responded by building reciprocal obligations, mutuality. And so that was the birth of the world's cooperative movement. It was born in Rochdale in the 1840s, and it spread all around the world from there. If we just go a few miles from Rochdale, we go to Halifax, another small town, the same problem. Halifax invented the Savings and Loan Association, created a thing called the Halifax Building Society, which became the largest bank in Britain. So these responses to that first derailment had in common that business and families were both sort of morally load-bearing. They were able to bear obligations to others and do something about it, practical. That was then. And now we move to this third derailment, which begins around 1980. And it's a slow derailment, but it's two new divides that open up in society. It happens in Britain, it happens in America, just the same, the same intensity. And one is a new divide between booming metropolises like Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, and so on, and broken provincial cities. And that reverses 200 years of economic history in which the spatial differences between places have been narrowing. So for 200 years until 1980, they narrowed, and for the 40 years since, they've been widening. And my own hometown of Sheffield, you may even know about, because there was a very funny, poignant film called The Full Monty, which described the economic collapse of Sheffield. It was an industrial town, a steel town, and the steel industry moved, all of a sudden moved to South Korea. And so there was mass unemployment. And the city's barely recovered. And it didn't manage to do a turnaround in the way that Pittsburgh seems to have managed to do a turnaround. So that was one divide, the spatial divide. Let me pause you there. It's interesting when we talk about that, because I remember we have a lot of family that's been in the farm business for a couple of generations, particularly in the Midwest, in the United States, Kansas and Nebraska. And growing up, I remember a lot of these sort of vibrant farm towns. And even my father talking about when he was growing up, all the farmers drove Cadillacs. And of course, just like anything, you see these boom busts of industries and locations, but you go back to those towns now and it's just empty storefronts everywhere all across the sort of plains. And I was going to ask you this later, but it seems more timely while we're talking about the geography of cities. I wonder how much this pandemic may have lasting influences on reversing that trend. The thinking being is a lot of cities tend to be much more 
compact as far as people and density versus being able to work remotely. You and I are talking. I'm in my guest bedroom, my child's toys everywhere in the background. It seems to be working just fine. Do you think that's going to have any sort of lasting impact on perhaps reversing some of that trend or not so much? Yeah. In terms of quality of life, unless you're young, single, and pretty affluent, the big cities offer really a pretty dreadful quality of life. London offers incomes about 70% above the British average, but London comes bottom of all regions in terms of well-being. The one psychological feature in which it's top is anxiety. So bottom in well-being, top in anxiety, but way top in income. So the conversion of income into well-being is really incredibly inefficient in these big cities. Yeah. All right. Sorry to interrupt you there. Let's move on to the next one on some of the big divides that are going on. Yeah. So the other big divide is the new class divide. And, you know, when I grew up, Britain had a very clear class system. America didn't, but Britain really did. It was who your father was, his social position, his social connections, that sort of thing. And no, it isn't. Now it's education. And it's, I think, very much the same in America. You've got this new deep cultural divide between the people with a good tertiary education and the people who never went to college. And that educational divide then plays into the ability to be productive because as the production systems in the world got more and more complex, to be productive, you need to build skills on the back of a good tertiary education. And that's what happened for lawyers, journalists, engineers, all the rest, academics. We did well. And so we got on a rising escalator of incomes. For me, it was first generation. Both my parents left school when they were just 12 years old. So I was the only person in my family to get an education. And boy, it did me well. Meanwhile, the people who hadn't gone to university, they'd invested in, in manual skills and welders, and steelwork, all that sort of stuff. And those skills started to become less and less valuable. And so for 40 years, the less educated were on a, a down escalator of income, and the more educated were on an up escalator of income. And these two divergences, the spatial divergence and the, and the educational divergence, then intertwined because if you were bright, from a, a provincial area, you got out. That's what I did. I left Sheffield and I never went back to work in Sheffield. My, my family still there. But, um, and so my family were going deeply down on the down escalator as the Sheffield steel industry collapsed. And I was going up and up as Oxford promoted me, Harvard hired me and so on and so forth. So this is, I'm sort of, an unusual case where I've lived these two divides, the spatial divide and the educational divide. And that's why the book, The Future of Capitalism, is quite a passionate book. It's, you know, it's, a, it's an analytic, you know, I'm a, an Oxford professor of economics, so it's a serious book, but it's got an edge of passion because these rifts shouldn't have been allowed to go on for 40 years without being addressed. Because they were neglected, 
people fell into despair, the deaths of despair, which we hear about in America. And eventually, they mutinied Britain, Brexit, they mutinied in America with Trump, they mutinied in France with the Gilets Jaunes, and so on and so forth. All around the rich world, these divides were happening in the mutants' land. Of course, the mutinies don't come with a forward-looking strategy. They're just expressions of anger. People are really fed up. And that's a gift horse for opportunists to come in and seize the moment, which sometimes happens. But the underlying reason is that these divides have been neglected. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reading the book, I noticed you also do a online course and I was getting ready to sign up and it said something like 50,000 or something people had signed up. And I don't know if that's just for all time or current, but that seems like a lot of term papers to be grading. But I wonder also how that potentially could either slow or reverse or improve that trend. Any general thoughts? First, I'd love to hear how that course has been going and for someone who's been involved in teaching what that's like, but also does that have any implications too? I think so. I mean, for example, uh, Michael Sandel at uh, Harvard, the philosopher at Harvard, who I have great respect for, we're fellow communitarians. His course is just massive. It's probably the most popular course in the world, and that's on philosophy. So it's possible to make even a rather esoteric subject clear and interesting. I've had yeah, way more than 50,000 on my course. It was the first online course that Oxford had ever done. And I'm afraid there won't be many more because for the moment, Oxford has decided that maybe that was embarrassingly successful. So they don't want to do any more. Don't ask me why. I just do what I'm told. But I know a lot of academics in Oxford, once they heard about my course, said, can I do one? Uh, So I put them in touch with the team. But anyway, such is life. And my secretary put together a big folder. She said, if you ever start to doubt why you're still working and doing this sort of stuff, take a look in that folder. And when I'm really depressed, I occasionally look. And it's just people who, from all over the world, we've got, I think, 111 countries, saying, thank you, I got this, I understood stuff, and now I'm going to apply for this, I'm going to apply for that, I'm going to do this. You know, So it's very nice. When I travel around the world, people come up to me in the street and say, ah, you know, my kid did your course, or I did your course. It's nice. Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful. I mean, I think you'll see some positive changes as we come out of this mess eventually, whenever that may be, that who knows, maybe capitalism will be the one to solve this through some interesting startups, maybe that have the ability to filter and curate some of these courses where the top professors around the world, instead of having tens of thousands of these colleges that charge a hundred grand tuition, rather that some of these students have the ability to access your lectures and others, but at massive, massive scale. I'm hopeful. It could be interesting. I agree with that. I mean, that's part of the genius of capitalism is competition and innovation. And that's what we need. I mean, the technology of standing in front of a class is really a pretty old-fashioned technology. It's been going since about 1200. I do a big course, both in Oxford and in Paris, because I enjoy giving courses. And it is something magic to be able to have an audience in front of you, and they can then push back straight away. 
So we performed amazing things with their online course chat groups and that sort of thing. So it's feasible to simulate quite a lot of interaction, um, even with big numbers. That's great. All right. So you also mentioned another divide being at the country level. Could you expand on some of the ideas there? Most of my working life has been on Africa and in particular the sort of fragile states of Africa. So I tend to think of that as my day job and all this advanced economy stuff as my evening job. But clearly what's happened is just as there are left behind places within countries, there are left behind countries. So that the some countries, China, India, have really, really caught up amazingly. That's a wonderful thing. And they've got more than a billion people each, so that's phenomenally good news. But there are an awful lot of little places that have just been marginalized and fallen further and further behind. Frankly, coronavirus is going to push a lot of them even further underwater. It's the, the group I call the bottom billion. It's hard to escape that. Since I wrote the bottom billion, a few countries have managed it. Rwanda's managing it pretty well. Ethiopia's managing it pretty well. But most are still struggling. Since you wrote that book, what's been about a decade in the hopper, a little over a decade, I think, what's changed, if anything? You mentioned a couple of countries that have done it well. Are there any great examples, and maybe would love to hear you unpack even more about why they've been successful and what are some of the main reasons that countries struggle? Yeah, so this is not a two-minute answer. Countries can only be changed from within. I mean, we can't save Africa. Either Africa saves Africa or nobody saves Africa. And what will happen in Africa is, I think, the same as happened in Asia, which is to say, in East Asia, four little countries got ahead. Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong. They, in the 1980s, they started to pull away decisively from others. And then they got imitated. Deng, who was ruler of China, went and had a look at Singapore and thought, oh my God, we better learn from this. And he got the model of Hong Kong right there, right next to him. So that, I think, will happen in Africa. You get three or four countries really getting ahead and others will then emulate that, learn from it. Countries don't learn from examples that are very distant. They learn from a successful neighbor. So I think that's what will happen. But why is it hard to turn around? I think there's two things. One is a sort of psychological problem, and the other is there's a brutal economic problem. And the psychological problem is that failure, persistent failure, tends to produce a mental outlook which looks backward and tries to allocate blame. And it produces a sort of mentality of victimhood, either one part of society in Africa, one tribe is a victim of some other tribe, or everybody's a victim of foreigners, colonialism, or whatever. And so whether true or false, those are not useful psychological ideas. What matters is to get some common purpose, some shared sense of we're all in this together, so that you can use a we, and then look forward. So forward-looking common purpose around some sensible-looking strategy, which you start and you learn as you go. So that's what success looks like. 
but you get into these traps of sort of victimhood and the persistence of failure seems to vindicate the story of victimhood where poor because of somebody else or because of enemies within there's nothing we can do about it outside africa argentina's been in that trap for about a century i think so that's the psychological trap that you've got to turn around to forward looking common purpose and both Rwanda and Ethiopia have done that brilliantly. If we go back 26 years, both these societies were in total meltdown. But now they're really hopeful places. So that's the psychological trap. And then the brutal economic trap. These countries, all poor countries, desperately need modern capitalism. Modern capitalism comes with firms, proper firms, not two kids standing on a street corner trying to sell things but proper firms that can organize people scale specialization borrow money invest innovate africa is just desperately short of proper firms two thirds of the population works solo or in twos or threes no scale no specialization no formalization no just doomed to poverty here's the catch africa needs firms but firms don't need africa nobody wants to go and pioneer the sector because pioneering is really very risky full of unknown unknowns and it's pretty lonely if you fail you lose everything and if you succeed guess what you get imitated that's great for the country but it's not good for the firm the first firm in the sector will have to train skilled labor since there won't be skilled labor in the country in that sector it's very expensive to train it you have to bring foreigners into trade and then if it works and a second firm comes in where are they going to get the skilled labor from your firm and so nobody wants to be first there's a first mover disadvantage in these countries in silicon valley there's a first mover advantage get to the idea first but in very poor markets where you're just setting up not an i new idea but a sector there's a first mover disadvantage and that's what we need to overcome and we've got public organizations that can do that they're called development finance institutions the world bank's got one called ifc international finance corporation america's got one opic just been renamed Donald Trump he came in opic was a waste of time he was going to close it and then thank goodness somebody explained to him what it did and he decided instead of closing it he doubled it so africa needs business you know the danger is it just attracts the only people who know they can make money are the crooks but africa needs decent firms to go in and decent firms need to be helped in that pioneering role so the psychological battle is the leaders within and the economic struggle is something we can help with and you alluded to it i mean one of the biggest struggles with africa in general has been corruption at the sort of despot level where many of these leaders end up billionaires whether it's siphoning money off or what not but the beauty of the internet and having more and more transparencies that kind of acts as a giant disinfectant and i think i was reading in one of your one of your pieces about one of the countries just started publishing all the revenue and tax information in the newspapers 
But any other, before we hop back over to the capitalism book on the bottom billion stuff, any other just general thoughts as 10 years on, as this, I think one of the big developments in Africa certainly has been the involvement of China, big state sort of influences. Any other just general takeaways, any thoughts? You mentioned the first mover advantage, and I've actually seen some interesting startups developing in Africa. Any other just general thoughts before we hop back over? The internet, the mobile phone, all this sort of stuff really is a gift horse to Africa. It's a leapfrog technology that Africa really, really needs. So indeed, you know, you go to a country like Kenya and young people are really, really innovative. Google went to Kenya not to teach Kenyans, but to learn from Kenyans because Kenyans have just, young Kenyans have innovated, innovated, innovated on all this new technology. So there's a lot of innovative energy. It just needs to be tapped. And the corruption is there because, on the whole, politicians haven't built this forward-looking common purpose. And so there's a psychology of always me against them. It's my turn to eat. My turn to eat means it's my turn to put my nose in the trough, you know. So that's the, there are, as you say, there's really two solutions. One is transparency and technologies really helping us there. And there's a lot that we can do to promote transparency. And the other is this domestic political agenda of common purpose. I mean, Rwanda is not corrupt because the leadership has determined that it will be cleaned up. And there's this sense of absolutely forward-looking common purpose to get out of poverty. And they know it's going to be hard. And so they know if anybody steps out of line and behaves corruptly, they come down on them like a ton of bricks. So there are hopeful, and what will happen just to round that off is as these countries get ahead, Ghana's starting to get ahead as well, Senegal's starting to get ahead. As this happens, they will get imitated within Africa. They're the role models. All right. So one of the things that I like about your books is you chat with a lot of economists. They spend 99% of the time talking about the diagnosis, but don't often spend as much time talking about prescriptions. But you do a great job of talking about not just the problems, but lots of ideas on how to work through and kind of suggestions and fixes and ideas. Would love to hear some of those on all the different levels you talk about, global, state, company, family, Maybe walk us through what are some of the things we can be thinking about and doing. Yeah, I'm happy to. So let's start with the spatial divide and then look at the skill divide. So spatial divide. It doesn't have to be a scenario of booming metropolis and broken provincial cities. If we look around the rich world, Western Germany isn't like that. Western Germany, widely distributed successful regions. In the northwest, you've got Hamburg. the northeast, you've got Berlin. Uh, southwest, you've got Stuttgart. You've got Frankfurt. And southeast, you've got Munich. So widely distributed, highly productive regions. And the city within its region, that's, I think, sort of the right sort of concept. Britain is just very, very belatedly trying to develop that as combined, it's called combined city region authorities. They're just a very few years old. Britain is way, way, way too centralized. But what do you do 
when you've got these city regions, it's still not easy. It's a little bit analogous to how you get a bottom billion country to turn around. If you're Detroit or if you're Sheffield, what do you do having been broken as a city? And you need a, there is no magic bullet, but there is, if you like, a magic cartridge uh, case of things you've got to do. It's a weakest link problem, so you need to do kind of all of them. One is to try and get some devolved political power so that you can have leaders who can actually do something. The second is to have a local finance industry. In America, you used to have a very widely distributed finance industry. And then over the last 40 years, it's become much more centralized. Britain has been highly centralized for over 100 years. Germany, it's never got centralized. You've got banks with the power of autonomy, the power of taking their own decisions about who do you make a loan to in each of the city regions. And that's really important because finance needs local knowledge. You've got to know the firms in the city, and you only know that by living there, working there for years, knowing the firms, knowing which ones you can back and which ones you can't. When it gets centralized in New York or whatever, then all that happens is you fill in a form. That's what happens in Britain. You fill in a form and it's sent off to London and it's then put in a model, a risk model, and the answer comes back, no. And there's nobody there with the local knowledge to override that decision and say, actually, this is a good firm with a loyal workforce, good management, good ideas, it's worth backing. And indeed, only when you've got local finance is there so much stake in the locality that the local finance knows it's got to work. So local political power, local finance, where you've got those two, you get a locally organized business community. In Britain, the business community is organized in London. That's where the money is, that's where the political power is, so that's where the lobbying is. You need locally organized finance. In Germany, it's all organized city by city. Then you need serious organized civil society that creates a sense of a brand in the city. In Britain, the one city that's got all this is Edinburgh, outside London. Edinburgh has a festival, world famous, half a million people fly into Edinburgh each summer. It's cool to be in Edinburgh, not just for foreigners, but for young people. My own 19-year-old's been two years running, and when I quizzed him, he said, oh, you know, it's really cool. And that's great, because that means young people, young, bright people, well-educated people, are willing to go and work there. If I try to get my son to go work in Sheffield, he'd, yeah, he'd take some persuading, I think. The final element in that is universities. You need a good university that's connected in with the local city, connected in with local firms, and connected in with the local workforce so it can do the training. And that cluster of five things then all needs to work together for common purpose. To give you an example, in Edinburgh, they did. The city worked out a strategy saying, where are the jobs going to come from in Edinburgh in 10 or 20 years? And then they weren't massively imaginative, but they decided, let's get the IT industry to come to Edinburgh. Well, that's what they did. They plugged away at it for 10 years. They've now got 480 IT firms. It's the biggest cluster in Europe. When they started 10 years ago, they had two. So forward-looking common purpose, 
with all these different entities, universities, finance, business community, uh, civil society, if they work together, they can achieve a lot. And that's what's happened in Germany. And then you get into a sort of happy state of affairs instead of the sad state of affairs where people sense they're failing because of others and they allocate blame. So you can think of a, of a society as like, a, or a community as like a dinghy with two equilibria. One equilibrium is very, very stable, and it's when the dinghy's upside down, and it's hard turning it the right way up again. The favorable equilibrium is when it's the right way up, and then you can sail where you want to go. It's a bit less stable than the bad equilibrium because you get puffs of wind, so you need an active management from the crew, but it's hard to get from an upside-down dinghy to a right-ways-up dinghy, and that's kind of the problem we're facing in these uh, broken provinces. What are some of the general thoughts on the company level? There's a lot of discussion in the U.S. about companies and misaligned incentives, particularly there's a lot of discussion right now in the headlines about Disney, who's apparently laying off a ton of workers, but a lot of the execs and leadership, et cetera, still getting huge bonuses. What's the general thoughts on the company's purpose? You've written a lot about the, this concept of the ethical firm. How is that evolving over the years? I'm amazed at how much success we've had. I, I teamed up with a colleague of mine called Colin Mayer, who was the director of the business school at Oxford. He got a companion book called Prosperity. And so we've done a lecture tour around Britain. We lectured in New York at the University of Columbia. And our common message is that the purpose of a firm can't be profit. That's what Friedman said. And it was just plain wrong. And nobody, nobody anywhere gets up in the morning to saying, what am I going to do today? I'm going to maximize shareholder value. And it's not a worthwhile purpose. Of course, firms have got to make profits. Otherwise, what they do isn't sustainable. And that's not a purpose. All firms need a purpose beyond profit that motivates the entire workforce of the firm to behave collaboratively as a team. And amazingly, that message, when I wrote the book, I thought this is going to take years. But... We got Larry Fink coming out with every firm uh, needs a clear statement of purpose, which can't be profit. He's sitting at head of BlackRock, which is you know biggest investor in the world, pretty well. We've got then in August the America's Business Forum of the top 180 chief executives in the country came out renouncing and rejecting that Friedman doctrine, as they said they've been publishing that on their website for 30 years, how a rationale is to maximize shareholder value. And they finally faced up to the fact that that's not what any of them are doing. It's not that they've changed what they're doing away from that. It's that they never were doing it. Nobody, but nobody can be motivated by that sort of purpose. The whole initiative to get these 180 chief executives to face up to the fact that in truth they weren't trying to maximize shareholder value. That was the chief executive of Johnson & Johnson, which has had a long history of being a very fine and purposeful firm. That's why Johnson & Johnson is one of the very few firms that's been around for such a long time, a century. 
very few firms achieve that. And the more uplifting purpose you have, and the more your staff all buys into it, the more successful your firm will be in every dimension. I'm very hopeful of that. Coronavirus, in a way, been a tragedy in that it happened too soon for that change of heart to consolidate. And so, indeed, we're seeing some shameful behavior. Firms have got a choice. They either take the long view and recognize their staff really matter, or they take the short-term profit-snatching view. And unfortunately, to date, the financial sector, with its emphasis on quarterly profits, is encouraging that. Warren Buffett has never behaved in this sort of quarterly profit way, and it's not done him any harm, has it? So I don't know how coronavirus will play out. I do know that there's been a groundswell of change of opinion. I was invited to Davos to speak there on this stuff. January, Klaus Schwab, the, the guy who runs Davos, wrote to me saying, best book I've read in years. This is exactly what we're trying to do. So there was a lot of talk at Davos about purpose beyond profit. But whether it's going to play out in, under this stress of unprecedented pressure on firms' balance sheets, I don't know. What about the family? How's that playing all this? Well, I can talk about my family and I can talk about families. In my family, my wife got coronavirus quite badly, and that was pretty stressful. You know, I'm juggling rather... The 19-year-old teenager, he's self-sufficient up the top of the house. He's been a plus. But a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old homeschooling is not easy, you know? <laughs> so juggling a, a sick wife and, uh, and hyperactive kids has been a fun challenge. But more generally, if we turn to the families, the families in the poorer half of society, the ones that didn't go to university and probably shouldn't go to university, They've been stressed increasingly over the last 40 years. And so you've seen this increase in divorce rates, single parenthood, really failing children, and a widening divide between the educational attainment of the, the kids with successful parents and the kids with, with parents who didn't have good education. There's a brilliant book by uh, Robert Putnam, Harvard called Our Kids, which describes the situation in America. And my God, it makes you want to weep. It makes you want to change things. And it should start with the family and go all the way through to vocational training. We know how to do vocational training, and we know that Britain and America are doing it really badly. The best in the rich world is Switzerland. And Switzerland isn't a a semi-Marxist socialist society, far from it, right? It's a very, very wealthy society that is an epicenter of capitalism. But it's got very responsible business that knows it's got to put a lot of money into training. And it's all run locally. And the vocational training is three and four-year courses. It's as prestigious as going to a university. Zurich University is one of the top 10 in the world, so Swiss have got a choice between a really good universities, but 60% of the Swiss choose to go the vocational training route because they know they will come out of that with a really productive job and a supportive local employer who's put money into all that vocational training. So these courses are paid, 
three or four years, half the money is coming from firms. So firms have got a lot of skin in the game in building those skills. To start with better treatment of families, end with much bigger investments by firms in vocational training run at the local level. That would close the, the gap between the educated and the less educated. And if we combine that with this much better approach to building viable city regions, we can heal these vicious divides. I wrote the book because those divides, although they've been horrible and produced these very damaging mutinies, they are avoidable and they are correctable. And we need to rise to the occasion to do it. I love it. Paul, I've kept you for an hour, so I'm going to start to wind down with a couple shorter questions. From someone who's worked in so many different parts of economics and has been through different crises and geographies, as we turn the page on a new decade, as you look out on the horizon, what's on your brain today? Any new ideas, papers, books, thoughts that you're working on, anything searing the, the frontal lobe of your brain that uh, keeps you up at night or you're really curious about? Yeah, sure. So two quick things. One is I just today finished a new book. Wow, congratulations. Uh, and it's joined with my colleague, John Kay, who's one of the most brilliant economists in the world. And it's called Greed is Dead. So it picks up on that idea, greed is good, and demolishes it. So I hope you'll be able to get a copy of Greed is Dead in America very soon. In Britain, it's being rushed out because it's seen as very, very pertinent to the present situation. So that's um, as it were, my evening job. And then my day job is to try and work on the poorest countries and how the coronavirus crisis is affecting them and what we can do about it. And the answer is we need to do quite a lot. We need to pony up some money. This is an unprecedented situation. Paul Kagame, president of Rwanda, place that's done so well, quite aptly said a couple of days ago, this could set Africa back 25 years and it needs help. Rwanda's made a big play on tourism. It's, it's the second most popular place for tourists to go in Africa because it's really well run, it's safe, it's interesting, it's fun. And of course, there are no tourists. Very sensibly, the government closed the airport very promptly. But with no tourists, no money. Do we let Rwanda go backwards or do we keep it afloat until we get a vaccine and this, this awful crisis is a memory and not a, not a current nightmare? What's the preview of sort of any suggestions that have to be sort of international organizations step in or what's the... The best vehicles probably are the international organizations. That's what we've got them for. IMF is there to to finance crisis management, and it's needed now. The World Bank is there for the same reason. Right? Its, it's first loan ever was to France in 1947, and in 1947, France was a fragile state that could have gone into, collapsed into the Eastern Bloc at any moment. And so, very sensibly, the world thought, no, we better keep France afloat. And so we did. France got the equivalent of $2.8 billion to get on with infrastructure. We need to take that same long-term view now. And I'm confident that the fund and the bank will do that, but they need 
support, they're both undercapitalized for the present crisis. They need the big countries to pony up with money, unfortunately. And it, although it's big money for Africa, it's actually very small money for us. It's the rounding error in the cost of the crisis. We need to pay up that rounding error. Well, we'll keep an eye out for both of those new pieces as they come out. Where are the best places to follow, Professor, what you're writing about? Do you have suggestions, homepages, if people want to keep up with what you're up to? I don't blog, I have to admit. I publish things, but I guess if people Google around, they'll find stuff. So I'm not a one to, I'm very wary, if you like. It's not about me, really isn't about me. It's about ideas that matter. And if somebody else could have these ideas, I'd be very, very pleased. Well, good. We'll add all the links to the books and white papers to the show notes. Professor, I'd love to keep you for five more hours. We'll have to have you back when the new book comes out. Thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks very much. Bye. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.